drug overdose deaths soared to over 93,000 in 2020. That's a 30% increase over the previous year. That's tragic and alarming. But beyond the statistics are the stories of real people, people we love, our families, our friends, our neighbors, who share their stories of pain, grief, and loss and suffering through addiction as well as the stories of those who work tirelessly to combat this devastating epidemic. I'm Mike Torville. Join me now for Healing Voices Project. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Healing Voices Project, where we share stories of addiction, grief, recovery, and courage. I'm Mike Torville, your host. Thanks for joining us. Today, we have a special guest, Dr. Lena Rasikot, Director of Graduate Psychology at American International College. And today, we're going to dedicate this episode to Sterling. Sterling was a man who was written about in the book by Dr. Rasikot called Living with the Little Devil Man. And uh, Sterling um, was mentioned in your book as well as Voices from the Falling, um, yes. a condensed version. And so I want to welcome Lena Rasikot, but also too, um, in memory of Sterling, ask our listeners if they'd like to donate to the Salvation Army. That's salvationarmy.org in memory of Sterling. And the Salvation Army played an important role in Sterling's life and helped him through periods of, of homelessness and was very helpful and um, in honor of Sterling that would be great to donate to SalvationArmy.org. Now Sterling passed in 2011 and since then of course um, my friend Lena has written this book and uh, thank you for joining us. Dr. Lena Rasikot. Well thank you for having me. It's really an honor to be able to talk not only about Sterling but about addiction, um, what we call in the psychology field substance use disorder. Um, and I know there's a stigma sometimes around the terms addiction, um, but I feel we have to have open conversations, and the stigma really is about how we judge things, and we need to be careful about how we see uh, people with substance use disorder. Um, I do want to ask you to all call me Lena. We're all here for the same reason. Um, no matter who we are, addiction can come into our lives. And I have to tell you that I have had colleagues, even in the medical field, come to me and ask me for advice about how to deal with their adult child who is suffering from substance use disorder. And I often refer them to Allies in Recovery, Mm -hmm. which is a website, alliesinrecovery.org, that helps families and the loved ones with someone with addiction. And um, our governor has paid for us here in Massachusetts to become a member of Allies in Recovery. Is Allies in Recovery for people of all ages? It's for adults. Adults. Yes. Over 21, over 18? There's no set age. Okay, but I would but say over adult. 18. Okay. Yes, adults. Okay. Yeah. Um, you'll find so much information there, even a scientifically supported program called the Craft Model to help you deal with the tough issues. But there's also so many people sharing their stories mm-hmm. that will help you. So I just wanted to pass that along that's, as well. That's great. Yes. In, in fact, with our website, HealingVoicesProject.com. Mm-hmm. We are that that we set that up as a platform to, to people to share their stories, to learn from others, and mm-hmm. to be inspired, and maybe provide an opening for people to say, "Hey, you know what? Getting my story out there is therapeutic. 
it helps. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think people get some feeling like, hey, you know what? My story really helps somebody. Mm-hmm. And it does. Yeah. It really does. Yeah. And I actually use my book. And by the way, I had to uh, use a pen name because this is really a true story from the greater Springfield area. Mm-hmm. And so my pen name is Lena Lizetta. Um, Living with the Little Devil Man is a true story about Sterling, who not only struggled with addiction, he also struggled with mental health issues, adverse childhood experiences, which we call childhood trauma. Mm -hmm. Um, But some people mistake that terminology and think about trauma as this really big, awful thing that happened, but sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's the everyday occurrence. Just a series of little things that affect somebody, right? Yes. Yes, whether it be, you know, actual child abuse or just walking in the door every day and not feeling loved or appreciated. But that can also go into adolescence when maybe you didn't feel that way in the home, but suddenly you're going to school and you don't feel like you belong. You don't feel accepted. Um, Maybe you're shunned by your peers or you're bullied. And we need to really take those things seriously because risk factors to addiction can include adverse childhood experiences and not feeling that you belong. And sometimes I would think that's hard, at least initially, to identify. Mm, Very hard. Because you can't say, well, that's because this happened or Mm -hmm. that happened. But when you have a cumulative effect, Mm -hmm. right? And then you start to say, well, there's something going on here. Yeah, more than what meets the eye, right? Absolutely. And I just want to share one psychological theory, if I might do a little teaching here. Um, Some of you may be familiar with this theory, but I don't think we teach it enough. Mm -hmm. And it's Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And it's really just a simple idea that I think is just more profound than almost all the other psychological theories we have. And if you think of a triangle, and on the bottom of that triangle is the the most basic needs we have of food, shelter, and water, Mm -hmm. Sterling at one time didn't have that. And it was the Salvation Army that helped him, right? But right above that is safety. Right? And safety can also mean psychological and emotional safety, not just physical safety. You know, And that's what I was talking about, the adolescent who walks in the door uh, of a high school and doesn't feel safe because he or she is uncertain of what's going to happen that day. You know, Are they going to like me? Are they going to accept me? Um, one of the young men I've worked with from the Brockton, Mass area had said to me, I never felt like I fit in until I took that first pill, and it was Percocet. And I heard that that uh, trend over and over again with people with addiction say to me, I never felt like I fit in until that first drink, until that first shot, until, until that first hit or that first pill. Mm-hmm. I've heard it. That was a pattern I heard over and over again with individuals that I have spoken with. Um, and so we need to be careful around that area of making sure people feel safe. And I think when you said it, when someone's deprived of some of those basic needs and safety security is one of them and you don't recognize that mm-hmm. and I think a lot of us mm-hmm. most of us go through adolescence right and with the uncertainties and securities and the self-consciousness feelings of mm-hmm. you know can I fit in and are these the best friends I should you know it's very hard without added trauma without added uh, social things that, that add pressure and a, mm-hmm. a broken family. Mm-hmm. And so by itself, it's, it's hard. So you add these things in. And then the, you see, okay, that first pill, that first mm-hmm. taste of saying, hey, I, I belong here, or I feel like I do mm-hmm. because I'm now, that insecurity is going away mm-hmm. temporarily. Exactly. Yeah. And I have a group of people who like me now. Yeah. Unfortunately, for the same reason. Yeah. 
Right. For the substance abuse. But, and, yeah. And it, what starts it. Mm-hmm. That's the thing. The the identifying what, what can trigger it to begin with. And mm-hmm. however we can nip that to prevent it, that's easier said than done. But Exactly. I, I know. That's yeah. hard. Well, beyond that, the next need is mm-hmm. belongingness. Yeah. And you just spoke about that. Mm-hmm. You know? And we all have it. So we all have risk factors. However, some people have even more. So we know that just once, you know, if you look at the Hamden County Sheriff's Department and the Hamden County um, DA's office, they often talk about just once. That's all it takes for someone to become addicted. But there's also many risk factors wrapped up in that just once. But that belongingness, if someone can feel they belong to a healthy group, that's resiliency right there Mm -hmm. to break down those risk factors. You know, so we need to make sure our children and our adolescents and our young adults feel they belong and that they're important. Because that's the next step in Maslow's hierarchy of needs, esteem, feeling that you're important and you have power, not power over others, but in your own life. Yeah, and I, the peer pressure, mm. right, from the friends that you find, that you identify with, and you, yeah. you want to belong. And then somebody there says, gives you some peer pressure to, to do take a pill take a drink smoke the joint whatever mm-hmm. I gotta do this if I'm gonna belong yes and, and then it just happens day after day and there you see the addiction growing yeah you know and the need for that drug and if you don't do it and if you say no and then you're afraid of being mm-hmm. ridiculed bullied so you have a tough choice there mm-hmm. right yeah um, and and that becomes okay well wh- what do I do and is it insecure adolescent maybe early teens or mid-teens you say well yeah i again that feeling of invisibility i can handle this it's okay mm, right yeah right and, exactly yeah, so and, let's talk about sterling for a minute and sure. what happened to him yes so he started to have some mental health issues um in early adolescence even earlier than that but around si- the age of 16 he actually started having some hallucinations so rather than look like the odd one out and address the mental health issues he began drinking heavily. Were, were those hallucinations as a as a um, prior to any drug use? Yes. Okay. Yes, right. what we were seeing was the beginning of uh-huh. schizophrenia. Okay. Yes, and I was not a part of his life at the time. But um, unfortunately, most of us misunderstand mental health. Most of even myself, uh, when it's right in front of you, when it's your family member, it's harder. Yeah. I know that. Mm-hmm. And it took me a while to really understand Sterling. I keep looking at the book and, and his uh, picture on the book. Um, you know, he pulls me in still today. He's still uh, with me, you know, and I, I want to share his story so others understand and see those risk factors, you know. You, uh, he was your son. To me, he was my son. Right. He absolutely was my son. I met him at the age of 19, mm-hmm. and I said to him, you're my son. And for a while, he did very well. He did very well. With he was the living rights. with you, and yes, he had the right yeah. supports. He had the right yeah. medication. Yeah. He had the right therapist. Everything lined up. Mm-hmm. But eventually, as the group of young adults and adolescents in my world started to go their own way and build their lives, um, Sterling got lost again. And where did he go? He found, of course, his drug of choice once again. Which was heroin, by the way. What, what led to heroin that. first? Was it drinking or was it... Um, yeah. He started with drinking yeah. and, of course, uh, marijuana usually goes along with that. And in his case, it did as well. And, mm-hmm. and his friends, you know, liked him better, unfortunately, that way. Yeah. Um, but 
I want to say the accessibility to heroin. You know, it's just too, too easy, easy yeah. even with his generation. It began with his generation to be available to high school students. Come on. We really can't let this happen. And, and we have gotten better, I think, at least at that. But we I, can't let it happen. In some things we've gotten better at, but in yeah. some things it, it's even more accessible now. To in, in high school, we were talking to someone earlier about the ability – uh, through social media, through mm, everybody can have point. access to it. And mm-hmm. this was what you were dealing with with Sterling 10, 15 years ago, right? Right. Yeah. So, yeah, he, he was, uh, social media was just coming out. Mm-hmm. So that was not the case when he was in high school. But yet it was not only available, but it was very cheap. Yeah. You know, so that accessibility there. And when, you know, the alcohol and the marijuana is not working as well as it used to. And you're going to a drug dealer, unfortunately, to purchase your marijuana. He or she's going to offer you something else, and that's that's where things get really scary. Something else could be tainted with other things. Oh, that, and that's yeah. that. I believe is what was his demise. He was homeless, living in a uh, area near here, mm-hmm. and um, I believe he had some of the first fentanyl. Okay. Yeah, I really do. What signs did you see that? <clears throat> When he was living with you, you said he was thriving, he was yes, doing okay. healthy, strong. How did you notice the deterioration? How did you notice the, the change? You know, it's interesting because yeah. I, I, you're, ma- you're re- making me recall one evening where he didn't seem to be there. And I said, what is happening? Did he take too much of his medication? Yeah. And when he finally did come out of it, he said, oh, no, I just smoked too much pot. Because mm. he was still using, many people um, still find that marijuana helps them relax even when they're um, sober, so to speak. Others disagree with that. But, you know, Sterling found it to be helpful throughout his life. Um, and I didn't, and I, I, looking back, I think he had used heroin that night, now that I know, you know, what it looks like. In hindsight, to, now you see the hindsight, signs. I yeah, know, yeah, yeah, I know. So, again, I had the education mm-hmm. around, you know, um, the signs, but I just didn't believe it in my loved one, you know. And someone I considered my son, you know, but it, but I didn't see it see that happen for quite a while after that. It was when he left the home. You thought it home. might have been an isolated incident. Right? I did. Yeah, I did. Now, did the drugs, the smoking or drinking or heroin, relieve the the hallucinations he had, or did it um, make them worse? That's a good question. Mm. So at first, yes, of course, they it, did relieve them. Yeah, but you know. They came back even yeah. stronger. Uh, I'll give you a great example um, that's in the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, one day I got a call from him. He was at uh, one of the hospitals in Connecticut, not too far from here, and he had overdosed. And so I went to the hospital, and they had told me he could not be released. I didn't understand why his blood pressure was so high, but yet he was coming, going in and out mm-hmm. with me. And um, when I picked up his pants, needles fell out, um, and I was like, Oh, and so the attendant um, explained to me that he had taken something called a speedball. I didn't know what that was. He he explained it to me. Sterling explained it to me later. I still, you know, it's it just, I don't understand how you can take cocaine and heroin at the same time, you know, or crack and heroin. I don't know. Um, where one's bringing your, your um, blood pressure so high you could die from that while the other one's bringing you down that you're going in and out of consciousness, you know? Mm-hmm. The one counters the effect as the other, but right. then you still get the high, and the energy, it, yeah, it's... It, it's it's right. hard to even f- to understand today, but 
what he said to me, what Sternly said to me was, the devil man came and brought the devil woman with him. So his hallucinations all started with the little devil man, and they became larger and larger to him. Um, and actually, he had even seen the little devil man very early in life. But that you can read about that in the book. Mm -hmm. um, not funny, but it's just so hard to believe that someone that young would have to s suffer with that. Um, but so the, I need to continue the story because they asked me to leave and come back later. I actually had to go to work. I, I would have called in if they would have let, let me stay, but they said, no, you need to leave. Let us take care of him. Okay. Come back, pick him up when he's stabilized. And, you know, they called me a few times to the hospital, tell me he was doing okay. But at one point, he left. On his back own? On the yes, he left because the hallucinations came back. And he went out on the street and got more heroin. So, um, to calm those hallucinations. Yeah. And so, he was battling that mm -hmm. all the time. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, he needed more, right? Because he built up a tolerance. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. That and, you know, what's what's amazing to me, not in a good way, was that in the hospital, here they had this crisis and this moment in time where they could lead this individual to better mental health care, mm -hmm. and they did not. Of course, it's the emergency room, and they had many crises that night and that day, going into the next night. Um, but if he had, I think back, if he had only gotten a new psychiatrist, some of the newer meds, uh, maybe a stabilization unit for a while, going into rehab, things could have been different. What you know now versus what you knew then, was there anything that stands out as something you'd have done differently? I don't know. I found myself arguing with the staff at the hospital to get him better care. Mm -hmm. I found myself calling crisis mm -hmm. with him, trying to get better care, getting mm -hmm. him to crisis, getting him to um, a place where the, he could get help after that event, um, and it still wasn't enough. So what could have I done? What what could I have done differently? I don't know. Hard to say. I don't know yeah. because there were so many gaps mm -hmm. in the system. And things you didn't know. Uh, you weren't trained for that to but, recognize those things, and most family members aren't. Right. So they don't know. I know there was a, a um, story of, of a friend of mine who works in the ER at Holyoke, and he counsels people um, who come in for, for all kinds of drug problems mm. and overdoses, and he comes in to counsel them. And while he was doing this, anyway, one of the doctors uh, had approached him and said, you know, I don't know what to do. I just don't know what to do. My husband mm. is addicted to drugs, and it's driving me crazy. And, uh, and my friend Dennis was astounded because this was a doctor. Mm-hmm. And her husband mm -hmm. was affected by addiction. She didn't know what to do. And his first thought was, if you, who were trained in medical field, prescribe medicine, if if you don't know what to do, how in the world are all of us, all of us who are not trained, how do we know what to do? That is exactly right. And I yeah. had mentioned a few colleagues who were in the mm -hmm. medical field who had difficulties dealing with their adult child, you know. Um, even with our trainings, it, it, addiction is a very difficult thing. And trying to get someone to change is a very difficult thing, no matter what the issue is. But the addiction is a disease that has taken over the individual's body. And how do we deal with that? How do we get that disease stabilized? 
You know, there's a lot of things I've read about and trying to learn about Mm. this is a disease. Mm -hmm. This is not a disease. It's a Mm. disease. I I think it's a great, it's a disease. Some people say, well, it's a choice. It may start off as a choice, okay? Absolutely. But it may start off as a choice that's triggered by some things that underlying Mm -hmm. trauma. But the way I look at it is, and I may be way off on this, lung cancer is a disease too. Often, not all the time, but often, that starts off as a choice. It starts off as a choice of smoking, Mm -hmm. okay? But it brings on that disease. Mm -hmm. I don't see this as much different than that. I agree with you, and I often think about diabetes too, Mm -hmm. which... I suffer from because I chose to eat certain foods all okay. my life, yeah, right? Yeah. And now I have to deal with this disorder, this disease, and it's ongoing. Mm-hmm. And yet it's still partly behavioral, right? So, yes, there's psychological components, emotional po- components, behavioral components, genetic components, and physical components, physiological components. And, and so just because it starts complex. off as a choice, it doesn't mm-hmm. mean you discount it as a disease. It becomes the disease. Right. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right. And, and that's how we have to treat it or, yes. you know, the individual may not find recovery. Mm-hmm. Most likely they won't if, they, if we don't address it as a disease, but also if we don't address the behavioral piece. We talked about the trauma and the adverse childhood experiences. If we don't address the driving forces, then it's going to be much more difficult to find that recovery. But recovery is possible. I felt that through and through for Sterling. Mm-hmm. And I actually went to a counselor when he passed away to get help with my grieving. And believe this or not, the counselor said to me, what did you expect because of his addiction? And I turned around and said, I expected him to live and find recovery because it is possible. We've seen it over and over again. So if anyone out there is suffering right now, no matter where you are in life, you can find recovery. It doesn't happen overnight. It takes time. It takes effort. But it is possible. And I think that's the greatest message we can send to anyone suffering, whether they have the disorder, the disease, or if it's a loved one, you know, to still believe that that person can find recovery. And again, I believe that Sterling's demise was actually some of the first fentanyl that came into the area. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so much is laced with fentanyl now, mm. even pills, and it's mm-hmm. not just in heroin. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 scary. It's it's getting even more scary as we're coming up with more new chemical compositions of the drug. But um, again, though, a person can find recovery no matter how deep they're into it. Yeah. And can heal. And what you said about what did you expect when he said that? Mm. You, it, having that expectation. Is defeating, mm. and I think you you have to say I expect him to live. I expect him, and I'm going to behave, and I'm going to take action with the expectation that they're going to recover, because if I do anything less than that, mm-hmm. I've already you know set this set the expectation he's going to die, and we're supposed to just accept that. Um, and then afterwards, you can say I I did everything I could. Um, sometimes it doesn't work out, but if you have the expectation that this person's going to recover. And then that person maybe have that expectation too because if you're defeated by it, mm-hmm. that expectation, that expectation of failure, what do you think the people around are going to have the same expectation? They'll see it, hear it, feel it from you. You don't want to exude that. 
do you're, you? No, you're no. absolutely right, Mike. You yeah. know, we don't want to send them into what we call learned helplessness. Yes. Why bother? Right. You know, I'm going to die anyway, so why bother trying? Well, that's not true, and that's the wrong message. Right. You know, and, and we don't want to have addiction or substance use disorder, whatever terminology you use, to become their only identity. Right. They're still a son, a brother, a sister, a wife, a mother. They're still all these people. Mm -hmm. Maybe they have even a career. They're still a counselor or an attorney or a doctor, you know, because people across the lifespan are suffering from this disease. And we want them to hold on to their other identities. That's where they're going to find recovery. They're going to find something they're passionate about, and they're going to first go through the processes to heal from the disease, but then replace that with something healthy. That's an important component. Whatever they're passionate about, whether it be a career or a hobby or just helping others. That young man in the Brockton Mass area, he is now a recovery coach. And what helped him it was the fact that he went to something called a recovery high school. And we have a number of them in Massachusetts. Not enough, mind you. <laughs> but he did go to a recovery high school because he started using the Percocets during high school. Um, and that helped him for years until he went to college got stressed once again and started using Percocets with his roommate. And do you know what he did to find recovery again? He went back to his principal at the recovery high school and they helped him. Wow. Yes. And so now he's a recovery coach in Massachusetts. And he's helping other people. He's helping other people. Yeah. He found his passion. And and pulling people out. Yes. And a lot of people will have on this show too Mm. are people who are in recovery, who were at their last legs, who were at their rock bottom, who... Mm -hmm had overdosed Mm. and somehow you know came out of being completely destitute not a friend not a dime and nothing and they came out and a lot of them have that passion to help people yes in fact there's so many people i've heard who've said you know if my pain my suffering and all that stuff i went through can help somebody else Mm -hmm. i want to prevent them from going down that path of ruining their lives and i'll share my story i'll stand up and i'll say please listen this yeah yeah, and, and this one guy who I know who had overdosed several times, he had all kinds of health issues. Um, his family said they lost hope, came out of it, and now he's working for a recovery center and doing the same thing. And that's it's great yeah. to hear those stories, yeah. really. Yeah. And, and even those who are the loved ones, we want to help others you know, to get through this and to help them believe in themselves, whether it is the loved one or the person suffering from the disorder, disease, mm-hmm. the addiction, yeah. you know, um, the substance use disorder, whatever you want to name it, um, just don't make it your only identity. There's other things that you are, and that's what's very important to send um, a message about. Right. Yeah. Right. I, I, I agree with you. And yeah. You know, it, it, we talk about statistics, you know, and how so many deaths especially in 2020 with all the mm-hmm. isolation and inability to go to meetings and all this stuff. Right. We talk about, oh, that's increased by 30% over mm-hmm. 2019, and that's horrible, and it is. But that the talk of statistics sometimes doesn't have the impact because it's that 30,000-foot view. I said, well, so 93,000 people died from drug overdoses in 2020. Okay. But what's more meaningful is when your friend's child dies mm. that kills you forget about I don't care if it's 93,000 9390 it doesn't matter because that one person that meant something to me died 
and that's what gets you. And I think that is what makes the difference to inspire people to say, I've got to do something about this, rather than that distant number of thousands. It doesn't mean much until it hits you at home, and it's hitting too many people at home now. That's very true. Yeah. And, and I, my pain of losing Sterling is there with me every day. My thoughts of him, I even speak to him when I say, Sterling, what are we going to do about this, you know? Because it's still there. Sometimes it becomes overwhelming. So I do understand that, you know, that when we look at those numbers, um, even just, you know, even though they're distant and that they are, um, and you're absolutely right, when you're personally involved with a loss, it's, it's different. Um, you really, really feel it. But each one of those numbers, you understand Yes, and yes. let's say use that night. There are ninety-three thousand families who have had to endure all that grief. Ninety-three thousand lives who were changed forever. Forever. Yes. You know, there's a one of the stories in the book "Voices from the Fallen." Is mm-hmm. um, this guy Jeff, fifty-something years old when he started using heroin? Hmm. Who would do that? Why? Well started with pain pill dependency and he built up a tolerance and you know that how that goes and so he his his doctor couldn't give him pills anymore because he exhausted that mm-hmm. and he had to get the pills on the street and then um, his pill pusher guy said sorry I ran out of I ran out uh, well now what well I have something else try this it's heroin mm-hmm. so he started using heroin and all the pain, everything went away, and to make a long story short, he um, he was he was married with four kids, um, grandchildren, and he's out in alleys in Holyoke shooting up heroin and um, overdosed. In the meantime, though, he had completely messed up his family. Um, his wife didn't want to divorce him, but finally said I, I have to in mm-hmm. fact it was her kids who said you've got to divorce that you can't live like this the cops are over the house stealing from the things from the house just total disruption in a completely different person who he was mm-hmm. growing up um he his wife and he did divorce two months before their 40th anniversary Then he overdosed, mm. and he was found, and he lived through it. And something happened. Something changed. And he went to a program um, called Celebrate Recovery. Mm. You've heard of Celebrate Recovery? Mm. And um, things changed. He got back, and he wanted to get back with his family. They said, uh, not so fast. Mm. Anyway, as time went on, they said, all right. Anyway, um, he and his wife remarried. Mm. On, on their 42nd anniversary. So the point is, when things are as bad as we've talked about, there is hope. Absolutely. There is recovery. Yeah. There is a chance to get your life back. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is a lot of success stories, even from the ashes of it all, right? And But I think even with people like Sterling and others that we try to learn from and say, okay, now what we what can we do about this? What can we learn and share to prevent people from going through this? And we talk about signs and what to look for and, and how to intervene and who to call when you have a problem. And there's so much mm. 
information and it's overwhelming. It's overwhelming. Yeah. Yeah. And you hear so many stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's wonderful to hear the recovery stories and yeah. we have to share those. Yeah. So I appreciate hearing that. You know, um even if, if you read it once, let's hear it again and again right. that recovery, you know, was possible for that individual who found himself in an alleyway homeless, right, right. you know, uh, destitute. Yep. And oftentimes family members say, well, let them hit rock bottom. And I unfortunately have to say Sterling hit rock bottom and I never got to see him again. So, and I've been called an enabler at times, and you'll read about that in the book. Uh, but I have to tell you that families do have to protect themselves sometimes. So I do understand that. And Allies in Recovery actually talks a lot about that on their website, and I'm sure you will as well. Um, But I think it's important to acknowledge the fact that sometimes we do have to put up some boundaries for safety. Remember the safety that's everyone's, one of everyone's driving needs. Mm -hmm. And that's when we have to say, I do have to put a boundary up here to protect the rest of us. And that's okay. But as long as you continue to let that individual know that they're loved and you believe that they have an identity beyond that addiction. You said a few things that, um, one, you talked about enabling. And I, I think to a large degree, we're all enablers, mm. right? And, and we can't help it. It's in our nature. you know, we're we, caretakers. You're right. And <laughs> yeah. you, you want to give that person a chance. Mm-hmm. There's a point when you have to say, okay, I, I, I stop. I, I have to stop. Mm-hmm. But, and then question of allowing somebody to hit rock bottom let them hit rock bottom Mm. i'm conflicted about that because i think if you just and sometimes rock bottom is death Mm. well wasn't that something you hit rock Mm. bottom well there's no chance to recover from that but hitting rock bottom and allowing someone to do that and i I get it. They say, you know, no, nothing's going to change. Nothing's worked. Maybe when this person, how do you, fi- how do you define rock bottom? It's different mm. from everybody. But the other thing is rock bottom and allowing that to happen just allows for more pro- devastation, whether it's financial devastation or broken relationships and trauma for other people that love that person. When you find your, your parent child is addicted and you're enduring all of this and you say well um how long do i have to do this let's try to nip it correct it as much as we can because rock bottom might lead to death or rock bottom just allows for that much more problems um so i don't know i don't know what, what i'm conflicted as i said because allowing somebody to hit rock bottom um might unfortunately uh, be the worst case scenario. It can be. Yeah. It really can be. And and you have to think about self worth. Where's mm. their self worth at that point? Do they think it's worthwhile finding recovery? Well, if my family doesn't seem to care and they're allowing mm. me, to, well, then why do I care too? Mm. Right. right. Does it perpetuate the problem? Make it worse? Yeah. I don't know. Although some people who found recovery would tell you that they hit rock bottom and then things turned around yeah. for them. But, yeah. Um, Obviously, they didn't hit the ultimate rock bottom, thank God. Right. You know, and that's where we have to be careful using that terminology. Exactly, yeah. and that's why I maybe... Yeah, <laughs> I don't understand. it's conflicting. It's complex. It's, it's hard. a complex situation. It's, it's very hard. Yes, yeah, I know. it is. Um, and so, yeah, and, and that's why I like sharing the stories of people who have hit a point. I don't call it rock bottom. They hit a mm. point that triggers recovery, mm-hmm. triggers action, and... You know, and we talk a lot about 
isolation and certainly 2020 during the pandemic made it far worse people oh. being alone not being able to reach out uh, out of desperation they start doing more drugs and the inability to go to meetings and you see that's why there was that 30 percent increase from the year before yeah. and now that we're getting back to normal you hope mm-hmm. that this just starts to go the other way uh, but I think that there's just got to be more um, information mm-hmm. and the ability for people to recognize it How, what do I look for who do I call mm-hmm. uh, I find so many people are misinformed and therefore unprepared when they're confronted with this and they make decisions that have the opposite effect you know I think you brought up a very important point by saying misinformed mm. and I think just by doing things like we're doing here today yeah or a loved one you know saying we care about you we want to see you get better it's the little things that are world changers yeah you know and but there's also uh, bigger things we can do if we're in the right place um, and I want to share the fact that um, in my position at work, I asked if I could build an addiction counseling program, mm-hmm. um, and I have built the curriculum. It is in, in place, and it is running, and we do have undergrads who are so interested in it. I'm a graduate professor, you know, but I thought this was so important. We had um, a number of undergrads interested in, in the program. As soon as we got it up and running, during the pandemic, mind you, you know, we were virtual, yeah. of course, at yeah. the time. We're not now. But you still did it. We still it's, did yeah, it. Yeah, we yeah. still got up. We just recently yeah. got... Um, American International College recently got the approval from our Massachusetts BSAS, the Bureau of Substance Abuse Services, to move it forward into a higher level of addiction counseling for individuals who want to get licensed. And we're going to be sharing that with the community. Um, Probably next semester it will be up and running. Um, Not probably, it will be. It will be. (laughs) (laughs) For the uh, outside community. It's still still running inside of Mm -hmm. AIC for our students. But I wanted to share that because I want to make it very clear that you, Mike, have helped. Your book is a part of that curriculum. Oh, great. Yes. I wasn't sure we talked about it. (laughs) It is. And my book is as well because, you know, I have put my book into the very first class of understanding human development because my book, Sterling's Story, actually covers child development through adult development and covers the issues of of childhood adverse experiences, mental health, and addiction. Now, your book has multiple stories in it where people are sharing so much about the complex issue. Yeah. And that I have put it into a course called Drugs in Society so that people can hear multiple stories Mm -hmm. about how individuals got to that point. And this is a course anybody can, can attend, right? Uh, yes, when yeah. we do open it up. It's not opened up yet to the community, but it, but it will be. Open to the yes. public. Yes, our undergrad students have taken the first round. Um, this coming next semester, spring semester, they'll be reading your book. Thank you for that. <laughs> yes. And, and, but so, when, when this opens up, let yeah. me know, because then we'll announce Absolutely. it here on the podcast. Wonderful. And have you back. One, wonderful. Yeah, yeah. Because th- yeah. this is how we change the world around us, yeah. by the little things we do. Yes. You know, And then thinking about, wait a minute, in my position, what can I do? Yeah. You know, I, I'm not a, a person who works in a recovery facility, um, but I'm a person who teaches. So how can I teach to help break down those misinformations that we have out there in our world? Mm-hmm. You use your talents for communication, for writing, and any which way you can you can get it out there. And that's what we're doing here today. And here we are, yeah, right? right? We're communicating, <laughs> open communication. Yeah. yeah. And we're sharing the truth yeah. about a disease, a disorder that builds yes. uh, throughout certain uh, risk factors 
and becomes a huge problem not just for the individual but the families that love that individual yes yeah you never know through even just a conversation mm-hmm. or just meeting somebody and i was thinking about when we met <laughs> a couple of years ago who would have ever thought yeah. right we'd be sitting yeah. here but i know that was about two years ago we we're at the library because yes. it was a book fair is that what it called? It was a uh, book. local author fair. A local yeah. local author fair. Yes. And uh, I had my table, and uh, I didn't know anybody there at the time. And it was about my book, A Promise to Astrid. Completely different topic than this. Couldn't be more right. different. But right. anyway, I was there, and you were at the table next to me, with your book, Living with the Little Devil Man. Mm-hmm. So we started chatting and going through this, and just became friends and started talking. And then yeah. here we are. Two years Here later. We are. Yeah, it's, you never know. It's amazing how yeah. things happen, and sometimes yeah. they don't happen overnight. Right. That's what's important to point out as well. Right. Yeah. But you, you just have conversation, you find things, and you see, you know, that that person was interesting, or that person, I think there's something, and you start, in fact, I think you inspired me to write this. <laughs> well, that feels great to hear. Thank <laughs> you, you. That's wonderful. Um, and Sterling's story, a condensed version, yes. is, is in here. A completely and, different chapter, and I appreciate the opportunity to write that yeah. from a different perspective as well. Yeah. Right. And in the book, too, one of the things we've done that is a little bit different is that each of the stories, these are eight very different stories. Very different. And uh, you have the perspective of the person who's going through the addiction. Mm-hmm. It's their voice. It's their experience at the at the moment but inserted in there is the perspectives from different people um a mother father brother sister a mother in your case because yours is Mm -hmm. inserted with sterling's and then at the end there's the clinician's comments and so you have a sort of an objective point of view from what is seen from Mm -hmm. a clinician point of view so trying to hit different perspectives to make people think yeah i see it that way or i see it this way yeah yeah that that helps yeah, and I, yeah. the students are going to really appreciate that because the feedback I'm getting around my book from the undergrad students is you've opened our eyes. You've given us a real story written at a level of just real world. Yeah. You know, it's not an academic textbook. It's a story. Right. And uh, But they know it's based on a true life experience. Mm-hmm. And I think they're going to feel exactly the same about your book. When they read those stories, they're going to be eye-opening for them. And the thing that I was hoping, and the, really the whole intent here, is to have the stories relatable. Mm. For people to say, I've seen that before. Mm-hmm. Or I see myself in there. Mm-hmm. Hmm. That hits home. And then you say, well, okay. Or I see somebody in a family member. Maybe there's something I ought to do because this is resonating. And that's what we both, I think, are trying to accomplish here. Absolutely. Yeah. And when you talked about those distant numbers, mm-hmm. these stories help to bring those distant numbers closer. It makes it intimate. Intimate, exactly. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I feel sometimes some of our students are falling in love with Sterling. They want to know, <laughs> do you have a picture of him? Oh, can he's very see? charismatic. You know, right? yeah, yeah. <laughs> they yeah. often ask me, can you come yeah. and talk a little more about Sterling? Can yeah, you show yeah. us a picture? Uh-huh. You know, those kind of things. And it makes it real. Yeah. And your stories are going to do the same thing for them. Yeah. And they're going to take it out into the world. Yeah. You know, that's the most important piece. They are going to be the world changers beyond us. Mm-hmm. They're going to take that information and share it and become the counselors who help. Yeah. And it all starts with sometimes just a conversation, it, and then it just yeah. expands. Yeah. It all started at the Agwan Public Library. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. It's true. And it's I remember true. reading your book right away, and I loved it. And it's, it that's, again, it, it, pulls it, you it in. made me, it yes. did pull me in, yeah, and I, I, hear that I over and over felt again. like I got to know Sterling. Yes. Yeah. Yes, that's my intent. And remember, I'll just tell the listeners again, um, 
this episode is dedicated to Sterling. And in honor of Sterling, we would like, if anybody would like to consider donating to the Salvation Army, salvationarmy.org, in Sterling's honor, that would be great. It would be wonderful in Sterling's own words. Hey, man, the Salvation Army gave me a brand new winter coat. It's cold out here. (laughs) His own words. Brand new coat. Not a used one. So That's nice. Yes. I'll I'll never forget that. And you think of how many others that are grateful for that. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll... Love to have you back. Oh, I'd be happy to be here, especially in January. Yes, or at least just pre before the semester, right? Because yes. that that um, we want to talk about the class and yeah. let people know about it. And, Absolutely. Um, anything else you got going on? Uh, um, you got a lot going on already, so maybe yeah. your plate's pretty full, right? Yeah. yeah well, um, I'm. All, I just was invited to speak with a forensic psychology uh, group yeah. um, to also do an interview with them and talk about incarceration. That also sometimes, unfortunately, goes hand in hand mm-hmm. uh, with addiction, which Sterling also experienced, and also talk about you know how that feels, you know. And the Salvation Army has programs, by the way, just yeah. to connect that um, to help those who are coming from uh, incarceration and looking okay. for reentry services, okay. um, especially if they have issues around alcoholism or uh, other substance use disorders, to help them find housing and other things. And I think we just need more of that. Yeah. You know, to realize that some people are incarcerated because of their problem with a substance. Many people. Yeah. Many people. And they need other yeah. types of help. Yeah. Uh, yeah. To get yeah. to back to um, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You know, the housing, the, the shelter, um, the safety, and, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, and we need to make sure we have those programs in place. Um, to help individuals like Sterling who lost their way because of a drug or another substance. And having the programs in place is one thing. The other is letting people know that they exist. Mm, good point, Mike. <laughs> Very good point. You know, um, right. How do right. people, uh, how do we make people aware, you know? Yes. Yes, we do have um, something called all-inclusive support services right on State Street in Springfield. It used to be called after-incarceration ser- support services. Okay, yeah, I remember and that. And because yeah. of the stigma, they changed the the name of the facility. And it's called what now? All-inclusive support services. Okay. Yeah, you don't have to ha- have been in jail mm-hmm. to use their services, but if you need help with shelter or counseling or uh, career services, it's there. It's okay. there on State Street. Um Sterling did not use AISS, but I do know an individual who at one time was a renowned attorney in Boston, but because of his alcoholism, he became homeless on the street in Springfield um, and did something that put him into the prison system for 90 days. Wow. Uh, And, you know, and I want to bring that out um, because oftentimes the individuals with substance use disorder they're not in very long they didn't do something that mm. you know was horrific to others they did something stupid like write a bad check you know uh, and this individual when he got out of prison he told me he was at the bus stop and he had two pieces of paper in his pocket one was a check that he had stolen at one point and one was the card that had AISS information on it and he said he made the decision which piece of paper to use and he went to AISS and with that one decision he eventually found recovery and how's he doing now he's doing great (laughs) he's doing great Um, he's he's found another career Mm -hmm. he's in real estate actually and um, he's doing fantastic right now that's great to hear 
Yeah. So it does work. It does work. It can work. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you, Lena. Thanks thank for you. coming on. I thank appreciate you. it very much. We'll have you back. And thanks, everyone, for listening thank you. to Healing Voices Project. We'll see you soon. Thanks. Thank you. Bye-bye.